We're really moving right along now. Revelation 21, verse 1. And that's it. So we're moving right along. <laughs> Let's turn to Revelation 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, I didn't choose this picture for any other reason than I like the colors. That's about it. I was just there for a little while. Anyway. So although we are, we are two chapters away from completing our studies in the book of Revelation, it is safe to say that we are truly now in the home stretch. Though it may take us a few weeks to get to the finish line. We find ourselves in a whole new environment now, uh, now uh, in respect to John's vision of the end of days. In effect, there is the end of days followed by a grand new beginning. And it is a blessed beginning. It is a blessed event. For those of you who have ever been around intense smoke from a burning fire, whether it be from as simple as a, a campfire or maybe a bonfire, or as our firefighters have had to experience in the course of their own work, a major blaze, there is nothing <clears throat> like getting to a place of clean, clear, refreshing air afterward, right? We have spent a lot of time in the smoke and in the heat of judgment on the earth, in the abyss, and the surrounding lake of fire. What we've been studying in the last few weeks from chapter 20. Not to mention all of the chapters that we have been dealing with the judgment that is coming upon the earth throughout the tribulation period. In effect, we can actually call that hell on earth to some degree. But now we're entering a new atmosphere. Or as one biblical commentator stated, into the clear, clean atmosphere of the eternal morning where the breath of heaven is sweet and the vast city of God sparkles like a diamond in the radiance of His presence. What a beautiful statement. You see, the Lord spoke clearly to and through the prophets of the Old and New Testaments concerning a new heaven and a new earth. First, we establish the fact that the Lord likes to do new things. The Lord likes new things. Now, no matter how long you've been a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a new thing. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you're a new thing. I, I think of... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5.17 where the Apostle Paul talks about us being new creatures in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
And nowhere does it say that as we mature in Christ that we become old. That's a good thing. It doesn't matter how old we are. It doesn't matter any longer how many candles they put on your cake. Even if it becomes a fire hazard. <laughs> doesn't matter. You're not old. To God, you're new. So, God likes new things. And when He created the, when he created the world, and, 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 and really the universe, when He created all things, in Genesis chapter 1, and He said all things are good, every day that He created something, some new thing, it was good, it was new, and it was going to remain new until when? Until man sinned. At that moment, the second law of thermodynamics kicked into effect, and everything began to wear out, and things began to die, and man was already dead spiritually. And it wasn't until the promise of Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of the woman, was there, any more, was there any hope that things would be restored again to newness? One of the things that I love about the Gospels and, and about the, the epistles in the New Testament is the reminder to us of the newness of life that we have in Jesus Christ. And I like that phrase, the newness of life. We have been brought to newness of life. When we get to the, the baptism on that uh, coming Sunday, the 21st, we're, we're going to, we're going to uh, go through a a burial as it were you know the being put into the water is is a type of of dying but then when we bring you out of the water it's 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 bringing you to newness of life we don't do it god already did it it's rising to newness of life we have newness of life in jesus christ right now today as believers in jesus christ no matter how you feel in the morning when you get up One ache or pain or a, uh, or a bunch of aches and pains. Doesn't matter. As soon as you can open your eyes and you take that breath and you say, Thank you, Lord, I'm still alive. You just began a new day in the newness of life that God has given you. So the Lord spoke very clearly about a new heaven and a new earth. But as I said, it begins with the fact that the Lord likes new things. Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19. It says, Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now I love it when God says, I'm going to do a new thing. 
Because God is good at doing new things. And again, I refer you to Genesis chapter 1. When he creates new things, they're good. I will do a new thing now. It shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And of course, we can apply this to the coming of of that nation of Israel that God would once again bring into the land. And and as we look through the the prophecies of, of the restoration of Israel and so on and so forth, it's all there in that particular chapter. But he talks about doing new things. So now, with that in mind, we go to Isaiah 65, where in verses 17 through 19, God says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. You may have these wonderful experiences. You may have these, these wonderful videos and, and photographs of, of the Grand Canyon. Anybody here? Do, I have some. Am I the only one that's ever been to? Who's been to the Grand Canyon and taken pictures of it? Isn't it a beautiful thing? Even though they'll tell you over there it's built, it was made in millions and millions and millions and millions of years. And, and I said, no, God did that in one just a few days. He's better than you guys. It's better than the way man thinks. All I have to do is tell you, and, and this is just a reminder of what we studied a long time ago in Genesis, but you know what? God carved that whole thing out just like He did the remnants of Mount St. Helens not too many years ago. In the very same way. People don't realize God throws these things at us and says... Where did you get these millions and millions of years that I did things? I could do them in days. I could do it in one day. He says, the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. You're not going to worry about your pictures of the Grand Canyon. They'll be remembered no more. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem, Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now that kind of says something about Jerusalem because today Jerusalem is in tremendous conflict. And what we have read and studied in the book of Zechariah when it talks about the very fact that Zechariah, that uh, Jerusalem as he states, is, is, is that, that stumbling block, that, that place uh, you know, where, where in actuality uh, the nations of the world are going to come against. But there will be a day when he will create a Jerusalem of rejoicing. And then he says in verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall, be, uh, shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Please keep that in mind because we see that again. In Revelation 21. You go to Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And there the psalmist says of old, You laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. Notice, I want you to notice, they will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. Well, of course, God is eternal. And when He makes what He makes as good, that 
will be eternal as well. And then in Second Peter chapter 3, going to the New Testament now, a tremendous prophetic vision given to Peter. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. There's that phrase, pass away. You know, when we hear that, and we've just seen it in Revelation 1 verse, I mean, Revelation 21 verse 1, and we see it here, when it says pass away, and then I mentioned it also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, the old will pass away, all things become new. What is it that we think of? Passing away is what? Death, isn't it? Dying. We sometimes have to talk of loved ones. Where, where's so-and-so? How's, how's so-and-so doing? Well, he passed away. Isn't that an interesting statement? Isn't that an interesting phrase being used here? But here it says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. We'll talk about what heavens we're talking about here. Which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, now, this therefore is telling us as the church, if this is going to happen, how are we to be living now? What are you waiting for? He says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, take notice of the word dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What manner of persons ought you to be now? That's the point. Now. Before all these things happen, and that's what he says, look at verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. That's the second time he mentions it. This time he adds, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Looking for new heavens and a new earth. Looking for things that are new. Before we press on further into this chapter, let's, let's do a, a bit of reviewing. First of all, the book of Revelation has, in its historical sense... It has traced the history of the church. It has traced the history of Israel and of the Gentile nations through our present age and right on to the very end of the millennium, the, the, thousand, year, the thousand year reign of Christ. All the scenes that are now before us in these last two chapters are post-millennial. The scenes in chapters 21 and 22 are post-millennial, after the millennium. Christ has already come, pre-millennium. This is now post-millennium. Satan and his minions, I know when I, I wanted to say minions, because I know a lot of people like that movie, you know, with those little yellow guys, you know, what they call minions, you know. They're cute, you know, some have one eye, some have two. And they went around <laughs> talking a lot of a funny Spanish thing, you know, whatever they do. But really, a, a minion is a crony, it's a slave, it's an underling. In reality, you know what a minion is? It's a wicked angel. 
So Satan and his minions are, or wicked angels have been judged already up to this point. And they, along with all the wicked of the human race, have been cast now into the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment of God, which we studied at the end of chapter 20. Which I want none of you to be there. So you need to, you need to know Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus Christ, you'll be at the Bema Seat of Christ, which I spoke about last week and with Pastor uh, Bob spoke about this past Sunday night here at, the, at our... At our uh, night of worship but the bitter conflict now between good and evil is past the bitter conflict between good and evil has already passed where we are now in chapter 21 from here on John reveals the vision of the eternal state it is here for us to learn about it is fear it is here for us to understand it is here for us to know that it awaits us who are in Christ. The eternal state. We continue to live on even after these bodies die. We who God made us in the image of Christ will go on in new bodies, different kinds of bodies, different ways, but we will still be there with God in Christ. We will be resurrected, raptured if, as it were, but resurrected nonetheless from these old bodies into new wonderful bodies. We all need them. Don't we? I mean, I certainly do. Some of us really need new bodies. <laughs> you know. Because these weren't out. Now, I've borrowed a, a very simple outline from David Guzik that, that gives, a, gives us a broad panorama of where we've been and where we're going as we begin the last of the three sections, or the last of three sections of Revelation. The three sections of Revelation can be seen in this, in this outline. The first thing is, Jesus, the Lord of the churches, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3. So that we see in those three chapters, Jesus, the Lord of the churches. Jesus, the Lord of the churches. Then when you get into chapter 4, all the way through chapter 20, we see Jesus, the lion over the nations. Jesus, the lion over the nations. And then lastly, from chapter 21 uh, through chapter 22... We see Jesus the Lamb among believers. So the last two chapters, we see Jesus now as the Lamb among believers. A very short, concise, but revealing little outline for you. I'll leave it up there for just a few moments. Well, getting back to the first verse of our text, Revelation 21, verse 1. The Apostle John simply states that the first heaven and the first earth are passed away. Now, he gives us no details as to how or to what extent this takes place. If we want details, we have to examine other scriptures. So, initially, John sees a new heaven, it says, for the first heaven passed away. He sees a new heaven for the first heaven has passed away. Both the scriptures and even science, even though they don't like the last part I'm going to mention in a moment, but scriptures and science have come into an agreement that there are three heavens. There are three heavens. 
First of all, there is the atmospheric heaven that surrounds our earth. The atmosphere where birds fly, clouds roll, planes do what they do through the air with the greatest of ease for the most part. That's the first heaven, as it were. The one closest to the earth. And then there is the second heaven. The second heaven we call the planetary or the stellar heavens, <coughs> where the sun and the moon and the stars reside. We see, that, we see it every night when we go out. If there's not too much smog out there, we can see things like the moon and stars. The further away from the city you go, the more stars you see. But then we get to the third heaven. By the way, there is no seventh heaven. I, I know that I haven't seen one in the scriptures, but you know, you ever heard, how many of you heard that phrase, the seventh heaven? I think it's some kind of weird thing, but, but anyway, there's no seventh heaven. There's three heavens mentioned in the scriptures. So the third heaven, we call the heaven of heavens, which is the abode of God. That would probably be the one that scientists would argue with, but nonetheless, there have been many scientists who have looked out into, into the universe with the strongest of, of, of telescopes that they've ever devised and seen, and it keeps, they keep finding things out there. They know there's something out there, but they don't want to admit that it's the heaven of heavens. We just know it's there. Besides, we know it's there by faith because we can trust what God says about it. But the latter of these, the third heaven, is a place where the spirits of the saints go at death. How do we know that? Well, Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago... Now, I have to tell you this, he's talking about himself. But remember, Paul is not one who boasts of himself. To speak in this particular way reveals that he really does have a, a heart to not boast of these things. In fact, he talks about it in 2 Corinthians. That to keep him from boasting, God gives him a thorn in the flesh or allows a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to humble him, in, in essence. Uh, you can read that in this chapter. Anyway, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Caught up to the third heaven, where is that? Okay, let's not worry about where it's at. Let's, worry, let, let's consider how he got there. He got caught up. You know what that word is? It's the Greek word harpazo. Harpazo. H-A-R-P-A-Z-O, if you're transliterating, pronounce harpazo. It is the word that is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 concerning being caught up, snatched away, and the rapture of the church is how we get that particular focus from that word, caught up to the third heaven. 
It is considered by a good number of commentators that Paul was actually speaking of himself being caught up to this third heaven after he was stoned by Jews from Iconium and Antioch uh, and left for dead. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 14. In particular, verse 19, but all of Acts chapter 14 gives you the story of of, uh, his being stoned and being carried away as if dead. Now, that doesn't mean that he was carried away as if dead. Some still believe that what he was saying was, or what Luke was saying was in Acts chapter 14, that he was dead. God brought him back to life. But in that moment, he was caught up to the third heaven. So it's very possible. In a sense, and according to the terminology, again, this was Paul's rapture experience. It was Paul's rapture experience. Now the heaven that is purged or passed away, in actuality is, there are two heavens, but if you say the heavens, then these are the two heavens that are passed away. But first of all, the heaven that is purged or passed away, firstly, is the heaven that becomes defiled because of Satan and his wickedness. Certainly, this is the atmospheric heaven surrounding the earth, which can also be considered as Satan's domain. And we'll see that in just a moment. And it can also include the planetary heavens as well, or the planetary heaven too, for that matter. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you'll notice that it says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air. And that refers, in essence, to this area or atmosphere that surrounds the earth. And it can even include the the planetary uh, heaven as well. I do not believe that it includes the heaven where God is, because God's there. Heaven is, is a glorious thing. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but we're dealing with these heavens, the ones that surround the earth that we are in contact with and connected to. The enemy certainly has been the prince of the power of that air. And then if you go down to chapter 6, where Paul is talking about the armor of God, and he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. All combined from the very first mention of principalities down through the spiritual hosts of wickedness. Principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places connects all of that group of enemies that we wrestle against. Remember, it says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these principalities that we cannot see. Even in this place, we cannot see them, but they can be here. In effect, many times in churches today, the enemy does all he can 
to disrupt, to distract us from learning what God wants us to learn. That's why we have to pray before we, before we begin to worship. We have to pray before we begin to study. We have to pray. Lord, while we're studying, Lord, keep me focused on these things because I know that you want me to learn something and I don't want the enemy to take that away from me. Listen, is it any wonder that we put up a, 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 a slide up here before that says, please, please turn off your phones or your ringers at least? Because eventually at some point in time, you know, we're making a very strong point and then ring, or whatever kind of ring, you know, auga, auga, auga. You know, they got all kinds of funny rings on phones nowadays. And, you know, I try to keep it light, and I say, well, you know, please uh, let them know we're busy or tell them I'll get back to them or whatever. But, I mean, you know, the thing is, uh, do you understand what I'm saying, though? The distractions. As long as we're on this earth, we don't have a safe zone from the enemy. We can't see him. But on the other hand, we know God's with us. On the other hand, we know the promises of God. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you my spirit. Not only am I going to be upon you, I am going to be next to you or alongside of you. And then I am going to be in you. So we have someone that's there to help us deal with these principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness. While we're going through our study of the Word of God. Or when we're serving the Lord. Or when we're at work. And people are throwing all kinds of darts at us. You've had people throw darts at you at work, right? Is it the people or is it the enemy trying to disrupt you, trying to distract you, trying to destroy your faith, trying to destroy your joy? Satan doesn't want believers to have joy. But the Lord said the joy of the Lord is, uh, the, the, the word of God says the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's why when we are faced with these kind of attacks, we're faced with these kind of uh, darts that are being thrown at us. What quenches those darts? The shield of faith. The armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. The things that we have, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What else? Am I missing anything? Probably missing something. I'm getting old now. You know. Missing something. But anyway, don't miss out on what it says in, Revel- uh, in Ephesians chapter 6. So, so notice then what we're wrestling against. What we're dealing with in this atmosphere or these heavens as it were. Not the third heaven, but the first and the second heavens. Now let's move on. John also mentions that the first earth has passed away. He says the first earth is passed away. As we've already read in Second Peter, 
it says, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Now, we all went to probably one of our basic science classes in school, not too many years ago for some of us it was many many years ago but some of us remember that that we were we were shown in a in a in a chemistry class you know the the table of elements and you know yes or no what what, what school did you all go to because I, I remember something like that i don't remember real good <laughs> but yeah i remember something like that. So so anyway, here's this table of elements. Well, isn't that interesting that Peter mentions elements? They didn't have the, the table of, of elements back then. But he knew by the inspiration of God thousands of years before that these elements would all melt with fervent heat, which means that it's all going to burn. Ah, we used to kind of joke about that. People would get so upset, they'd come to church and somebody opened their car door in their brand new car, you know, and they go, Oh man, my... hey, it's all going to burn. Don't worry about that little scratch. It's all going to burn. Well, it is. It's all going to burn. That's what, you know, what Peter tells us in Second Peter chapter 3. The elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth, notice, Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So this is suggesting something. This is suggesting a replacing, not just a remaking or a remodeling. Because some people are saying, you know, God's not going to destroy this earth. He'll just make it better. Well, no, He is going to make a better heaven and a better earth. But he's going to do so by getting rid of the first ones. It is not about repl- it is not about remaking it. It is not about refurbishing it. It is not about remodeling it. It is about replacing it. In fact, when you look back at Isaiah sixty-five verse seventeen, which we already read, and I'm going to put it up here again, and I'm going to underline a certain word. But when you look at it, Isaiah 65, verse 17, notice now the word that's underlined. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. I create, God says. Do you know what that word is? In the Hebrew, it is the word bara. B-A-R-A with an H at the end, bara or bara. What that word means is to create out of nothing, which is how he created the heavens and the earth. The, the word bara is, is prominent in Genesis chapter 1, when it says that God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1, he said, God bara, God created out of nothing. The word is used here again, for behold, I create new heavens. Out of nothing, which means he's not remaking, he's not refurnishing, he's not remodeling, he's replacing. Because he goes on to say, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. It's going to be so beautiful. We're not going to sit back and say, this is pretty, but boy, oh boy, how pretty it was there in El Paso. 
Yeah, right. Well, I know there's some beauty to the desert landscape. None of us are going to say, I can't, whoa, I would just love to get back to El Paso. Liar, liars. Don't lie. No. The former shall not be remembered or come to, to mind. The idea that needs to be grasped now, the idea that we need to grasp is that heaven, heaven and eternity are now to envelop our focus. They are now to surround our focus. They are now to capture our focus. Heaven and eternity. What we would consider as the history of time will come to an end. You know the tick-tock time that we've lived with all these years? Down through the centuries, since the beginning of man, God set a time in motion. When He created the heavens and the earth, time began. See, I wonder how long I can go on with that. Time began. And the more time went, civilizations began and ended. Wars would start. Wars would end. Devastation would begin. Devastation would end. A new civilization would begin. A new nation would sprout up. Nation would come against another nation and then there would be another war. Time ticking, time ticking. And then there was advancements. How interesting it is that a, a, a major portion of the advancements that we see in technology and science uh, have all begun. Not all, but many of them have begun from a desire to better be at war with others. It's, it's an interesting thought that so much technology today has, has arisen out of this, this need to be better than others. And too often those technologies, those advancements have been used to destroy other nations. Just a thought about the wickedness of man that we could take something that would probably be good for society and in some way or some degree use it to hurt and to harm and to destroy. I think too often of the evils of a man named Adolf Hitler, how he wanted everything. It became an obsession. 
became a desire, just a burning passion in his heart to destroy the whole of the Jewish people. Not just a portion of the Jewish people. To destroy them all. Was that a new idea? And is it a new idea today? No. What's the root of it? The garden. The serpent. What God has created to be good, Satan does everything he can to destroy it. God created a people. He said, you're my people. You are going to be the ones to bring my truth to the nations. And in effect, you will eventually bring in the the one who is the truth, the Messiah. We've already read it in in Revelation chapter 12, that, that, that grand illustration of of a, of a dragon awaiting for the birth of a child to destroy it. And in effect to destroy a whole nation. Let's never forget that Jesus came first to the Jew. And they will realize one day, as it's told to us in the book of Zechariah, that they will see him. And they will notice the piercings. And they will weep, for they'll know who he is. He loves them still, but his enemies do not. And his enemies are ready to destroy all of the Jewish people. And anybody who stands with them, I don't think I have to tell you who all that is. We see it every day on the news. And too many people are putting their heads in the sand because it doesn't matter to them. It matters to me. And it should matter to you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem because God commands us to. Because God is not done with his people. He's not done with Israel. And I know that those of you who have been with us to Israel know that. You've seen it. God's not done. Out of the ashes of the Holocaust came the modern state of Israel for a purpose and for a reason. God is not done with them. We are to pray for them. We are to stand with them because God is going to bless them. The history of time comes to an end, but there's another history. The history of eternity. And that's about ready to begin. No more TikToks, folks. Because in eternity there are no TikToks. So when we are told in verse 1 that there was no more sea, we have certainly arrived at the understanding of the eternal state, which is the absence of sea. And I'm not just talking about water, even though that's a big element here. 
That's a big deal when we talk about going from time into eternity. There are a number of texts that refer to the millennium and, and contain mentions of bodies of water. I'm just going to give you a few. I mean, these are just really just a few. Psalm 72, verse 8, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is still toward uh, working within the, 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 the realm of the millennium. There's still time in the millennium. How do we know? There's time in the millennium because Jesus reigns for a thousand years. Well, for a thousand years is the beginning of a thousand years and there's an end to a thousand years, Right? So we're not to eternity yet. So there is mention that through the tribulation period, through the the day of the Lord uh, and all of the judgment that takes place, even in the millennium, there's there's a a dominion that he has over the sea and and, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9 verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and and the horses or the horse from Jerusalem. The battle uh, bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Uh, Zechariah 14, verse 8. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. This is just mentioning a few verses that connect the, you know, the understanding of water or, or large portions of water uh, to uh, the day of the Lord or to the tribulation and to the millennium. But the most significant verses actually deal with the Jewish mindset. How the Jewish mindset sees this issue of no more sea, as it mentions in our verse, first verse of, of chapter 21. Which the, the Jewish mindset considers the sea as, the, as, as separation and evil. It considers the sea as the place of separation and the place of evil. The Jewish mindset sees the sea as a place of separation and of evil. A place of evil. Consider, if you will, what we have already seen in Revelation 13 verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, John says. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. We talked about the fact that the sea is, is symbolic of a multitudes of a multitudes and multitudes of people. So we have to understand the symbolism of that. That the beast arises out of the sea. To the Jewish mindset, that's an evil thing. And then in Revelation 20, verse 13, it says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each according, one according to, each one according to his works. So then again, the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And I mentioned last week that the dead who were in it, that the sea itself was just this multitude of people that were earthly, and because of that, spiritually dead so the sea gave up the dead so understand again the Jewishness of this understanding to the Jewish mindset the sea is a place of evil and a place of separation 
When you go back to Isaiah 57 for a moment, or the book of Isaiah chapter 57 verse 20, it says, but the wicked are like the troubled sea. The wicked are like the troubled sea. Those of you who have been in the Navy or, or you know, just spent some time on the sea and in many cases when, when the sea gets kind of choppy and rough, I mean, you, you don't like it. I mean, you want to, you know, get rid of everything that's inside of you from lunch. You know, just, it's that way. It's a trouble, you know. Nobody, who controls it? I think about the times that Jesus, just on the Sea of Galilee, and some of you here have been on the Sea of Galilee, and you know that, that when that wind picks up, I mean, it, it, it can toss that little boat around that you're in just this way and that way. So you can imagine that when Jesus is talking about, you know, when, when it talks about Jesus calming the sea, the disciples who were, who were trained fishermen, they were afraid. They were afraid of, of, of being tossed overboard and, and dying. The sea to them was an unstable thing. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. When you look at the sea, it might look so beautiful, but you don't know what's underneath it. You don't know what's in it. You can't always see what's, what's lurking under the water. Ta-da. 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 How many remember Jaws, the movie? Anybody remember that scene where the guy's head goes to the... And everybody in the whole theater just jumped, you know, wow. I thought, wow, that was pretty scary. You don't see what's underneath. That's why to the Jewish mindset, it it was a, a frightful thing. But consider it, Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. And how many times do we see Jesus still the waters? Jesus is telling those Jewish men, I have the power to still the waters. He was revealing to them that He was Messiah. The fact that there will be no more sea is an interesting consideration in eternity. The new earth will have no more sea. More than likely, that's literal and figurative. No more sea. No need for these great bodies of water. We will have bodies by which we will serve the Lord. We can move here and there, but we're going to constantly be in the presence of God. We don't need a sea that provides all that good seafood. And we won't need rivers because we already have the water of life in Jesus. It's not going to be necessary. This is very different, you know, when we say that the earth is not going to have any more sea uh, from what we see today, because consider that the earth today is made up of nearly 75% of water. So what does this all mean? Well, first of all, it may very well speak of man's makeup. His dependence upon water will no longer be necessary. In fact, we're made up of a lot of water ourselves. 
In our glorified bodies, we won't have to worry about this. Do you ever think about that? Your glorified body? I can, I can assure you of something. I, the older I get, the more I look at my body and say, Lord, I thank you for life. I thank you for breath. I thank you for wisdom and, and, and you know, a brain that works still, kind of. And, uh, you know, I thank you for hands that, though they're a little arthritic, they still can do stuff. And, and I thank you. I can still play a little piano from time to time and I can, you know, build stuff. And just, just you know, I, I thank you for all of this. But Lord, it's getting harder. The older I get, I mean, it's getting a little harder. And I look at things... Nowadays, I look at things and I, I don't look and say, ah, I'll get over it tomorrow. Now I look at it and say, I better call the doctor. I think I, I don't understand what this is. No, that's not to say I don't trust the Lord. I do trust the Lord. But I don't want to be presumptuous either. I don't want to be here as long as God wants me to be here. I certainly don't want to help him along the other direction. I want to be right. I want to help. The best thing to do is do the best with what he's given me. Have you ever just thought about that glorified body that God is going to give you? This is why I'm saying that it's so important for us to understand how we need to surround ourselves on the issues of heaven and eternity. We are... We are as God made us to be, we are eternal beings. The bodies are not eternal. These, these will perish. But we have been created to be eternal. Now, here's the thing. Will you be forever before God, worshiping Him, praising Him? Or will you be separated from Him eternally in misery and pain? and in judgment and in punishment the Bible says every knee shall bow we will bow before him as we are standing or bowing before him as he's on the throne in eternity can you imagine that everyone in hell will also bow everyone who was cast into the lake of fire will also bow and yet they won't see and they're not, as, as some of our friends always say, you know, oh, listen, I don't need, I don't need the church. I don't need Jesus. I don't, oh, listen, my friends and I, we're going to party in hell. Yeah, right. I weep for these people because they don't understand what an eternity apart from God is going to be like. We've already touched upon it. won't talk about it anymore. Secondly, this could also speak of the sea of humanity from which we saw Antichrist and many other wicked leaders emerge throughout history. But in the eternal kingdom, we won't have the masses of humanity. Even though there will be many before the throne of God, we won't have the masses like today that are so much in opposition to God. The flesh as we know it is gone, and we who love the Lord will be present there will with our new bodies. That's why we need to consider these things. You know, it's been said that the book of Romans 
can be called the book of the much mores. The much mores. I'm not talking about s'mores. The much mores. Let me give you an example. And this is just a few examples. All out of one chapter, by the way. Romans chapter 5. Notice this. It says much more than. You see, it's the book of much mores. Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. What about uh, Romans 5.10? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Romans 5.15, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many die, that is Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Uh, verse 17, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Aren't, aren't these great verses? These are the verses of the much more. One more. Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Romans is a book of much mores. The book of Revelation can then be called the book of the no mores. No mores. And we're going to get to this in a little bit more detail later, but let's, go, let's just go look at verse 4 and we're going to end with this. Revelation 21 verse 4, notice what it says. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. In effect, he also says, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Today we live in the much mores, where sin abounded, grace abounds much more. But when we get to heaven, because of all the time we have spent on this life, in this life, considering death all around us, the sorrow that comes from not only death but wickedness, the crying that comes from seeing how evil and wicked this world is and how we see so many bound by sin and death, and the pain, no more pain, but the pain that comes from, from having lived in a, in, a, in a cursed world for all this time. We think of all these medical advancements that have happened and, and we know we keep, well, we keep giving money to all kinds of research and stuff and yet there's still death, there's still pain, there's still disease. And no one's immune. Even Christian doctors had uh, contracted Ebola here recently. Praise God that a couple of them were, were healed and, and cleaned from it. And another one now has been found. But what is it saying to us? Take an interest in eternity. Take a long look into the heaven that God shows us in Revelations, Revelation chapters 21 and 22 and look for it.
Look for it. Wait for it. Some of the greatest preachers and and, and theologians of all time believed in one thing, that they had to look beyond this life and put their eyes on eternity every day to lead others out of the darkness of this cursed world. It has been attributed to Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian of the 18th century, who said in a prayer to God, he said, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I don't care about this world. As if to say, I I don't care to, to keep looking at what's happening. I know what happens in this world. I know how man fails. But there's too many people failing eternally. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs so that with every fiber of my being I can lead others to that place where they will see you they will see Jesus they will see the throne and they will seek and desire to stand only and always before the throne of almighty God in eternity forever and ever and ever amen shall we pray